0: Digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2.
1: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for this ride this week is Mr. Will the Thrill.
2: Greetings and salutations.
1: And uh, you guys, I I cannot explain to you how excited I am to welcome our guest. Uh, TJ is not here this week, uh, so we have a a beautiful British accent, (laughs) Um, and not my brother's. And she is a cornerstone of this podcast. I don't think you guys understand how important she is to this podcast, especially uh, things that uh, I have done. She has been the main source for three of my episodes uh, if you guys listen to the month of mercury or my series on david bowie she had written the books based on that and now she's got a brand new book that has just been released called the stone age it came out this tuesday in america the second so please guys get your orders in this is an incredible book this is leslie ann jones welcome to the show
3: Thank you very much. I haven't had a buildup like that in years. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Well, we are definitely fans here at Rock and Roll Heaven. And so um, I just, I guess I'll start out by asking you, I I believe that you were speaking. I can't remember who it was that you you gave the interview was, but I'm going to follow the wise words. One of my favorite authors who once just said that she didn't really write questions. She just listened. And so uh, I'm going to follow your advice and just listen to you. So let's just start off. I know that your your father was a sports writer, Ken Jones, uh, who some folks might, in America might not know, but was very prolific. Um, what was the moment that you kind of knew that you wanted to follow in his footsteps?
3: Oh gosh, early on, actually, my father was a professional footballer when I was a child. And uh, in those days in this country, girls couldn't play soccer, that was it just there weren't teams for girls there weren't clubs for girls it wasn't taught at school and so I very much wanted to play football but I couldn't do that never mind the fact that I was useless at sport anyway excuse me (coughs) I'm so sorry and um, then my dad uh, was injured out of the game he had um, an Achilles tendon injury and uh, he had to to quit playing and he moved into journalism, into what we call Fleet Street, which is, as you have Madison Avenue for advertising industry, we had Fleet Street for journalism. And my father moved into into writing about sport. And all the time when I was fairly young, I thought I'd love to do that, but I didn't know anything about sport and I wasn't really that interested in, in most other sports. And about the time I went to secondary school, uh, we had a local hero just emerging in my small town where I lived. Uh, his name was David Jones, and he used to get with uh, an acoustic guitar in the library gardens. And we used to wander up there after school and listen to him. And he had all this kind of frilly hair and snaggled teeth, and he was quite weird looking. Not as weird looking as he became in later years. but. Uh, because children do this kind of thing, we discovered where he lived. We made inquiries. And we used to catch the bus, the 227 bus, from the Market Square in Bromley and take it down to Beckenham and then walk up South End Road to this huge Gothic mansion where he had an apartment and he was living with Angie, who became his wife. This, of course, is David Bowie we are talking about. And we used to hang around on the doorstep and knock on the door and just be horrible and and hoping that he would answer the door and because he never did. Angie always answered the door and she gave us signed photographs and said, off you go home to your mothers. We had people on that doorstep who grew up to be Boy George of Culture Club and Billy Idol and Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees. You know, this was almost like a crucible of music to come in the eighties. And I said to my friend, Natasha, who actually called herself Ziggy uh, in later years, one day she's going to be out and he's going to answer the door and he's going to invite us in for tea. And this happened, this came to pass. And I clearly remember that afternoon, hadn't told my mother where I was going. And he answered the door wearing a yellow, lemon yellow silk kimono and he was barefoot I'm not sure if he was wearing anything underneath, but I didn't check. And uh, he had a, a little bottle of black nail polish in his hand and a cocktail stick. And he was trying to paint his fingernails with this cocktail stick. And he asked us in for tea. And I remember we sat in this Christmas colored room. So the furniture was always all dark red velvet and the walls were bottle green. And I spied into the bedroom and, the ceiling of this bedroom was silver and had dark pink walls and everything. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have to grow up and be with people like this. I, I came from a very ordinary home where we had neck curtains and little crocheted covers over the toilet rolls in the, in the downstairs toilet and things. And, and here is this silver ceiling and this man painting his fingernails black. And it was just so exotic. And he was obviously an artist. and. I thought, how am I going to do this? Because he is musical. I'm not musical. He is a painter. He's an artist. I'm not even remotely artistic. And then the pennies dropped. I could do what my dad did. He couldn't play sport anymore, but he could go on the road with soccer teams and boxers and all kinds of other sporting stars, and he could write about them. I was now going to do this. I was going to grow up. To be a journalist and go on the road with bands and write about them, and all of that crystallized in David Bowie's sitting room.
1: That is, that was one of my favorite stories. I've heard you speak about that in the interview, and I believe that you actually wrote about that in Hero. Correct?
3: I did write about it. Yes, it's, it was such a big moment, just a huge turning point in my life, and. I always think back to it because I would not have a career today had, had my father not been injured out of soccer and become a journalist. And had I not sat in David Bowie's sitting room and realized what I could do with my life.
1: That's amazing. So Incredible. So what what is your process from, you know, sort of the nexus to the end? Uh,
3: okay, so... Um, There were no training courses for journalists in those days. And so I thought about going to university to read English but I kind of felt like I was good enough at English. You know, I could speak English, I could write English. I was always a writer. I wrote, I used to write short stories from a very early age and I felt that I had my head around writing. I didn't feel that studying literature for three years at a college would really expand my ability to, to translate my thoughts and opinions and, and understanding of music, which I wanted to write about. I didn't feel that the university degree in English would help me do that. So I studied French and Spanish uh, to degree level. And after that I got, oh, we didn't even have the word intern back then. We, we called it work experience. <laughs> 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 yeah, it basically means that you work really hard for a company that doesn't pay you for a bit and i went to a radio station called capital radios the main uh, independent station in london and i worked there alongside an amazing dj called roger scott who's sadly no longer with us and roger came to america when he was very young in his 20s and mm. built a career as a disc jockey by pretending to have been a friend of the Beatles. And of course, people, <laughs> people, people in the States were so enamored of the Beatles and anybody had a connection back then that they believed him because he, he said all the right things and he had the right accent. You know, it's, it was uh, the late 60s. Um, he was actually in the bed-in in Toronto with John and Yoko. And I've got a picture of that as well, of him sitting beside John Lennon uh-huh. <laughs> and roger was a very connected guy and he knew somebody at a rec- record company called chrysalis records uh, he was the art director a guy called john pasch john pasch designed the rolling stones lip and tongue logo yeah yeah like when, one of the most iconic the most recognizable <laughs> rock and roll
1: yeah.
3: logo in the world i would say yeah and he does, he built his career designing that But he was a student at the time at the Royal College of Art. And Mick Jagger had come into the college, obviously Mick being a very parsimonious individual, uh, didn't want to pay much money for a unique logo. And John got a minute fee for designing this logo, which of course they went on to expand and develop and adapt over the years. And it wasn't until I think sometime during the nineties that John thought, do you know what? I really think I was underpaid here, and I ought to perhaps try and get a bit more money out of them. So he went to them and they said no, and he went away with his tail between his legs. And then he was moving house, and he found a box in his attic that had his original sketches for the Rolling Stones lip and tongue logo. And he took them along to the Victorian Albert Museum, which is our main cultural museum of, of everything to do with being British. And they bought them for a fortune and he was able to put his son through private school Wow! on that money. So that was a great story. Anyway, I I worked for John and television was just beginning to expand in this country. We only had three channels at that point. They were just about to launch a fourth. And I was invited to audition to become a presenter on this channel fours rock magazine show and i got the part as they say i i was chosen so i had this warholian 15 minutes of fame where i was on tv every saturday night with two djs from capital radio everything goes around and around uh, presenting bands who performed live in the studio doing interviews with bands and artists and um and then Fleet Street came looking for me so I got to do my father's job in a very roundabout way because I was on television first and then newspapers began to offer me work as a columnist and and actually I preferred it I wasn't great in front of the camera I, I think you either have that or you don't you can't learn to be a television presenter you either have that that gift if that's what it is the ability to communicate through a lens or you don't and I'm I'm a much more of a backroom person I was better off in front of a keyboard writing <laughs> than I was in front of a camera so so that that kicked off my my journalistic career and then a bit later down the line when I had my children I couldn't go on the road with bounce anymore so I came off the road and started writing books about them instead
1: that's amazing actually funny enough we know channel four me and my husband uh we watch we somehow managed to fall upon the big fat quiz of everything and with jimmy carr and all the hosts and stuff and and that's uh that but apparently that's presented on channel four and i literally just told you and stuff like that so we're trying to figure out like how can we get that station and because it's it's a great station
3: (laughs) yeah but just uh, recreate the format just do your own version of it and uh you know it's yeah. nothing is copyright really <laughs> you just you just have to adapt the format and uh, do your own show why not
1: <laughs> yeah accurate so like um how do you how do you find your subjects how do you pick your subjects
3: i think they pick me actually um certainly freddie Mercury, which which was the first major rock biography that i wrote uh the i've written four books about freddie the first one was published in 1997. So this was just after my son was born. And I had known Freddie and the rest of Queen. I'd been on the road with them a little bit. I would met Freddie several times. I'd interviewed the band. I'd become a bit of a pet journalist to them really because they were a strange band. They, the music press here, which was very powerful, at one time not so much anymore but they didn't know how to categorize queen because they didn't fall into any of the standard genres of of popular music and so they tended to be a little bit dismissive of them a bit disdainful and not really write about them very much because they didn't know how didn't know what to call them and i was sent down to their management office in notting hill I think this was 1984 uh, it would have been actually to to interview freddie and brian just ahead of their european tour that year and i was really nervous because because it was my first formal interview for a major national newspaper a big selling newspaper that was the daily mail and so i was a bit scared when i went in and brian was very welcoming and very friendly and uh, did most of the talking. Freddie sat in a window seat looking out, just as if he was looking out to sea from a ship. You know, he wasn't really engaging in the conversation in the room. And uh, every now and again, Brian would say something funny and Freddie would laugh spontaneously. And the thing I took away from that was every time Freddie laughed, his hand would fly up to his face to cover up his teeth because he had extra teeth at the top and the bottom of of his jaws and so he had protruding front teeth and I came to understand over time that that Freddie unless he got to know somebody pretty well and and was able to feel himself in company he always covered up his teeth but he didn't do it on stage and I pondered that such a lot because he'd be out there in front of stage huge audience singing away at the top of his voice open-mouthed and he didn't cover up his mouth. So maybe that was to do with the fact the audience a bit further away, they couldn't quite see into his mouth or whatever, I don't know. But almost as though he became somebody else when he was performing. So that's how I did the first Freddie book. and, And then I took some time out to have my children, have more children. And then the news started to come through that Queen we're talking about doing a, a film uh, about the life of Freddie Mercury, who died in 1991, uh, mainly because there was such a swell of interest in Freddie, really. It never gone away. And even now, 31 years almost since Freddie died, he's never been bigger. He's far bigger today than he was during his lifetime, which is so strange. Uh, but not really, if you think about it, because once the source is cut off, Once you can't get any more George Michael or Prince or Michael Jackson or whoever it is, the legacy, what's left, the catalog becomes even more precious than it was during their lifetime because there isn't gonna be any more original music. And I think also the fact that Queen would not have a career today if Freddie was still alive. He wouldn't still be the front man of Queen. He was pretty much done with Queen. He was bored with all that. He was making records with Montserrat Caballé, the Spanish soprano. He was much more getting into a more concert format, as in classical concert. And I think he would have taken that forward. He loved working with her. He found his musical mate in Montserrat. Mm -hmm. And I think they would have gone out every couple of years and done major concert tours in the great opera houses around the world. And that he would have left Queen behind. And I think Queen would have died a death. They've only really, to me, continued as queen because Freddie died. Anyway, I made a comeback. I, I took a few years out, raised my kids, and then there was news of this uh, film coming along. So my agent phoned me out of the blue and said, well, I think we should republish your book because now there is a great hook with this film about Freddie. And I said, oh, no, no. Uh, he said, what? I said, well, I could do it better now, You know, we get older, we mature, we have better ideas, we can write better, which is the whole point of being a writer, isn't it? Every book should exceed the quality of the previous one and we should progress as writers and bring more of ourselves and more of our experience to each book. Otherwise, what's the point? You can't regress as a writer. So he said, what are you saying? What, you would write it again? And I said, yes, I would really love to write it again. Uh, there are more people I can interview now. There's, I have, I have better lines, better ideas that I'd like to explore. And so I wrote a new book about Freddie. And uh, this was, it came out under the same title as the original one, which I think then a lot of people thought, oh, well, it's just a kind of rehash of the first one, but it wasn't, it was a whole new book. And then when the film, because the film took years to come to fruition, at least a decade, And by the time the film came out, it was time to publish another Freddie book. So so I updated the second one and that one came out as the third one that was published as Bohemian Rhapsody. And that was a Sunday Times bestseller. And then uh, the most recent one came out uh, last year, which is called uh, Somebody to Love in which I really explore his personal relationships. And work out who is the Freddie Bulsara behind the Freddie Mercury. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and doesn't correct me if I'm wrong, he has actually new music coming out in September, right? They found something, something, something in a vault
3: somewhere. Oh, don't they always find something in a vault somewhere? I mean, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm very cynical about this kind of thing now. It's it's usually a rehash of some kind of uh retake or an original take or something for me this milks the fans over and over again all the music is out there and yeah they can tell us they've they've found something that's never been recorded before published before or whatever but um yeah i'm a little cynical about that fair
1: fair enough yeah because um you know they're always saying like oh prince has got you know a, a 1700 songs that have never been released and you know this person has they, they're always doing this and they put the fans on edge and it ends up being something like when they redid a uh, little less conversation from Elvis Presley mm-hmm. so it's just kind of a new remix
3: yeah it is that and, and technology has obviously changed and I'm not a big fan mm-hmm. of remixes or, or um, re-engineerings sort of classic albums at all and there's quite a lot of that around these days i think that the original in its raw state with limited technology as as was the case when these things were recorded that's part of the beauty of the entity Mm
4: -hmm.
3: and i don't think we should constantly be seeking to improve things because actually each time you improve something you're taking a little bit of the original away And so I'm not the most massive fan. Another reason being is that much younger fans who weren't alive during the lifetime of these artists, they come to that artist to uh, a variation on the music, not the original format. And they believe that the version that they come to is the original. And so the original winds up getting lost. Which
1: is, and, and that's kind of happening now with uh, Metallica and Kate Bush because of Stranger yeah. Things.
3: Yes. And yeah. it's not a good thing. It's not <laughs> a good thing.
1: Well, only because you brought it up. And I'm just really interested in taking um a, a, an absolute legend's take on this. What did you actually think about Bohemian Rhapsody, the film?
3: Oh, I saw it a few times. Um, I'm not a fan. Uh, I know it's the most successful musical biopic in the history of musical biopics. Um, I know that Freddie was 45 when he died and you can't fit 45 years of a life into two and a half hours. I know all those things. Uh, I've heard a lot of excuses as to why there were so many mistakes made. You know, this wasn't just cutting corners of time to try and fit it all in things were invented that didn't happen for the sake of that storyline. And I can't help but disapprove of that. I think Freddie would have hated it because it isn't a true representation of who he was as a man, as an artist. Uh, The projection of this man as a tragic figure whose tragedy was that he was a gay man who was in love with a woman, that was too simplified. And I think the reason they did that was a simple fact of bums on seats. It was, they were, they had to get a 12 certificate for this film so that parents could take their children to it, children over the age of 12. So they doubled their audience by doing that. And I think it was that cynical a move, but there are many, many errors, uh, particularly pertaining to Jim Hutton, who was portrayed as Freddie's boyfriend for the last few years of his life, and they they introduced him in the film as a waiter at one of Freddie's parties. Jim was never a waiter; He was a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. He was a barber at the Savoy Hotel. And uh, they met in a club. and there was an eternal love triangle. So Freddie was involved with Jim. He was also involved with a German man called Winnie Kirschberger. He was also involved with an Austrian German actress called Barbara Valentin. We lived in Munich and Freddie was having sexual relationships with all three of those people simultaneously. Where was any of that in the film? This was completely wiped out, I suppose, because it would give the wrong impression. It would seem decadent and um, a bad impression on younger people and that kind of thing. You know, people say, well, we saw drugs in the film. Yeah, we saw a little smattering of white powder at a party here and there, but, but there was nothing extreme. Mm-hmm. And there were quite a lot of extremes in in Freddie's life. Also, the whole story about Mary Austin and how he pined for her, but you know, Mary Mary stayed in his life, and there are really good reasons for that. Some of which aren't in the public domain yet, mm. but they're they are coming.
0: Ooh.
3: And there's much more to say, and so. Yes, there'll be another Freddie book. (laughs)
1: uh, (laughs) I was just going to ask. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. If you just said
3: to me this time last year, what more can there possibly be to say about a man who's been dead 30 years? I would have said, you know what? We've done it. We've, we've, We've actually said everything there is to say. Even I was surprised to get the email that I got just after Christmas. And I can't say any more about that, but there is more to come. So, you know, even even without that email and without what I know now, um, I think I picked out about 70 plus errors in the storyline of Bohemian Rhapsody. I can see very well why younger people think it's the most amazing thing they've ever seen. The reason they do is because they never saw Freddie live; They weren't born when he died they regard it as a perfect vehicle for the music which you know we will rock you the musical the stage musical was as well to some degree Mm -hmm. and that was massively successful that toured all over the world there's a difference between successful and good and accurate and i've been very unpopular for pointing out some of the things that are wrong with bohemian rhapsody brian may even went so far as to Right on his website that they didn't know who I am and that I'd never met the band I'd never met him I'd never met Freddie at which point I posted on Twitter a picture of myself and Brian uh, just taken quite recently uh, only a few years ago and uh, just to remind you Dr Brian May here we are together how are you doing you know it's 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 a bit of a cheap shot but eh. it's too oh. easy to wipe out people like me I suppose because you know the truth is it's um an irrelevant commodity at some levels isn't
1: it i
3: i i say too much (laughs)
1: no no Um, i'll show you something really quick and i'm so sorry
3: uh to our listeners but um there you go there you go (laughs) so uh, and i'm guessing he hasn't yet said that he hasn't met you guys either Surprisingly, no. I
1: I I assume that uh, he will either remember me because I I just I spilled all the words on him at one time, or he will have forgotten me in a sea of a million faces. There's only there's only two ways this is going to go. But he he's
3: also 75. I mean, we should we should not forget this either. That um, there is a certain amount of loss of memory as we age. I certainly experienced that in my own life you know I can't remember everything the way I once did but I have resources I write down everything and I look everything up and if you're if you're an international rock superstar traveling all over the world year after year after year you meet millions of people they can't remember us all can they
1: yeah it's it's impossible I mean like even with my job uh, my normal job it's people are like well do you remember me I'm like I'm so sorry I don't because I talk to probably 11,000 people in a four month period. So I can only imagine what it's like for someone like you or someone like him to, you know, be this traveled and, and just, it's just, it's a numbers game at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, ha- I
3: have this thing, I never forget a face ever. I can, somebody can come up to me who I went to school with a thousand years ago and I may not have seen them since I was five and they'll come up to me and I'll know them. I will know them. I may not get the name immediately, but I will know the face. Faces don't change that much. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, if we ever make it over to uh, to you, I will fully
3: expect for you to remember me. <laughs> oh, well, so I, Listen, I'm looking at your face right now. It's, it's imprinted on my memory. Yeah.
1: Now, I'm going to actually uh, kind of steer because uh, we, we want to talk about your new stuff as well. But I'm just interested because i I always find that women who are leaders have something in them that that sets them apart from everyone else. I want to know how do you deal with the music industry being a boys club and music journalism being a boys club? How do you deal with misogyny?
3: Oh, good question. Uh, oh. There was a lot of it back in the day when I was young, and I think that we girls put up with a lot because we didn't know we didn't have to. And suddenly when I worked in a newsroom, for example, I can remember I'd, I'd walk from the show business desk where I worked across this massive newsroom to go to the ladies room, let's say. And on the way, it was like running the gauntlet. People would pinch my bottom, men, They might ping a bra strap, they would make some sort of remark about what I might be doing after school, or, you know, um, I think it it was all extremely offensive, and it would today be regarded as sex abuse. But of course, it wasn't back then, because it was one big boys club, and we were the infiltrators, we weren't supposed to be there. And I don't like to get too militant about it, but I don't put up with anything like that now. And I have two grown daughters and Good. their attitude <laughs> in life is very, very different from how mine was at their age. Certainly on the road, uh, there were a certain number of women around because I think in every scenario where I've been out on the road with an artist, there have been women close to the, to the principles, if you like. So in the case of David Bowie, there was always Coco Schwab was around running his life. Uh, in the case of the Stones, there were always the specific girlfriends. Um, Paul McCartney, who I've had quite a lot of dealings with over the years. I was good friends with his wife, Linda. She didn't take anything from anybody. She was a tough cookie. And she showed you the way in lots of ways. You know, I can remember being in Great Ormond Street. It's a children's hospital in the middle of London. And she was a patron of that hospital. I was eight months pregnant. I was huge. I was standing in the front of a pack of journalists behind a red rope, you know, cordoned off. You press, you good press, you stand there because the famous Linda McCartney is coming in in a minute. And she, she was arriving that day to open a terminally ill ward for sick children. Can you imagine sending, and this was a male editor who sent me on this job, a male editor sent an eight-months-pregnant woman to cover the opening of award for terminally ill children that is not a great thing to have done is it anyway she marched in she spotted me she couldn't really miss me because I was stuck out like a sore thumb and she took open the rope and she grabbed my hand and she said you're coming with me and we walked around the ward together and met various children various members of staff and after that she invited me to the lunch that she was going on to she knew instinctively how difficult that was going to be for me. And I think it's women like Linda, you know, she took so much stick for going out on the road with Paul, her husband, as part of Wings. Everybody said, she's not a musician. She can't play keyboards. She can't sing. She sings out of tune. Paul was the one who said, she's my wife. I want her with me. Uh, Yoko Ono goes everywhere with John. so, So why shouldn't my wife come with me? He taught her how to play keys. Her harmonies on some of the Wings albums are very specific and very noticeable and also very lovely. She didn't pretend to be a musician, but there's an awful lot of people out there doing this kind of thing who are less of a musician than she was. So why not, really? But she she took a lot of hatred. Imagine doing that now in the age of social media. She would be trolled on Twitter. She would be abused on Facebook. She would have people posting disgusting abuse all over Instagram and so on, but she didn't have it to that degree. Imagine her doing it now. I think she was very brave and she raised her girls to stick up for themselves, to have professions and to make their way in life. And I think I like to think we were trailblazers in a way. Those of us who did take the abuse, who did take the stick, who did carry on going out on the road with rock bands, and who weren't just there because we were young and pretty as we were in those days, um, but because we were there doing a job, and that's the difference.
1: All right. Well, I think
2: you have a couple oh. questions too about oh. just just. My goodness, where to start? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really interesting that it feels like, especially when you describe the meeting with David Bowie, it sort of happened organically almost. Uh, mm-hmm. have, you, have you ever struggled to gain access to some of these artists? Has there ever been an uphill battle just to get in the room with them or with anyone that you need to interview about them? Have, has there ever been a real struggle to get that information?
3: Back when I was doing interviewing as a, as a job, it's part of my job as a journalist, I always got access. Nowadays, nobody gets one-to-one access anymore. There's no such thing as a world-exclusive interview with a a rock superstar, it doesn't happen. The most you'll get is be invited to a junket where everybody rocks up with their little recorder and their microphone and it's 12 microphones in the middle of a round table. And they sit there for 15 minutes. Everyone gets to ask one question and everybody gets everybody's answers. So, So I think the thing that changed was agents you know, back in those days, people tended to have a manager or some sort of managerial figure. But the press, especially in this country, the press and artists who were seeking to get press so that they could promote their album, here was a very much an album tour, album tour scenario in those days. They'd spend however long in the studio recording an album and then they would take it out on the road for a year to years, it used to take that long. to to promote it and then it would be a little rest back in the studio, another album, another tour. Um, People like us, uh, the members of what we called her Britannic Majesty's press corps were very useful to the scenario because we were the ones who were giving it oxygen. We were writing about them and, and printing stories in our newspapers. And so to get a world exclusive interview with say David Bowie was that was an important thing for both sides for him as much as it was for me but those kind of interviews don't happen now
1: and it's wow. it's interesting because we feel like we actually have more unfettered access to the lives of our favorite celebrities such as like the kardashians or yeah you know, we we have instagram we have twitter we have tiktok and you have these you know now i can you know uh, tag Lizzo in a video that I made and maybe she'll get back Mm -hmm. to me. So it just seems so interesting now that it's like, it seems like we have this veil of accessibility, wherein now it's actually more protected than ever.
3: It's interesting that you say celebrities like the Kardashians. The Kardashians are figures of ridicule in this country because they are famous for nothing other than being rich and on television and having made a reality TV show about their family and their lives, they are not artists, they're not talented. And so there's a massive difference between an artist and a celebrity today. And I think that social media has has built the culture of celebrity beyond its worth to the point that it has to some extent, encroached upon the territory that should by rights belong to genuine artists. So we do know too much about people that really we couldn't care less about, but we'd know less and less because they're higher and higher in their ivory towers about the genuinely artistic people whose brains we wanna get into, whose minds we want to read and to, to go behind the songs and ask them, You know, when you wrote such and such a song, when you wrote that line, what were you thinking about? Who is it really about? we don't get to ask those questions anymore, not unless they tell us. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Will, how about um, how about you take a,
2: a swing? Yeah, and it, it, I mean, to that point, it seems almost very filtered, you know, the information that we get. And uh, one of the things we talk about on our podcast is when we cover an artist, we take a what's called warts and all approach, um, mm-hmm. where you look at sometimes the things that are not the best about that individual. Um, is- So it begs the question, have you ever experienced any, or have you ever been looking at an artist or a subject and you have all this information to choose from and just some of it had to be taken out? There's got to be something that had to be excluded. Um, has, Has that happened
3: to you? Oh, yeah, it happened a lot in the old days because on a newspaper, for example, you have teams of lawyers who comb all of your copy for potential pitfalls. And there's also the consideration of if you trash this artist, if you bury them in in a non-reversible way, that you're not going to be invited on the next tour. So you've got to give the rough with the smooth, the light with the shade to a certain extent, and and they've got to sort of come out on top, really. And I suppose the justification for that is, well, that they're. they're The newspaper considers them big enough and important enough to write about. They are human. Everything about them is an extreme version of any other human being. They are infinitely more talented than we will ever be. They are exceptionally artistic and they are dysfunctional and damaged and they probably had abuse in their childhood. These are the three reasons why people become rock artists in the first place because they're trying to fill a void. And we know about voids. The more, the harder you try and fill a void and in a void, the less able you are to fill it. And so the cycle goes on. So they become very complex, really difficult people to understand. And that makes them even more interesting. The more you try and delve into that aspect of a personality, the more the barriers go up and the less likely they are to give you anything. At which point we turn to the lyrics of the songs, especially in the case of a solo artist. People used to use Elton John a lot as an example of this, and I used to laugh away to myself thinking, nobody's heard of Bernie Taupin here, nobody actually knows that Elton doesn't write the lyrics himself. He puts the lyrics to music, they were poetry. And I think Elton is a classic example of somebody who who hid behind a public image until a certain stage and age in his life when he came clean about himself, but he didn't for the longest time. So he was able to create this alter ego and, and fool the public to a certain extent with that caricature. And then he stepped out from behind it. And at that point they become even more fascinating.
1: And so, as a journalist, how how do you carry the burden of knowing a secret that the world isn't ready to know? And and I bring that up because I've just seen in other stuff things about like Bill and Mandy, you know, mm. that 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 kind of thing. You know how how do you how do you deal with that on a day to day? kind of being like the secret keeper for some of these artists.
3: Oh, I mean, when I when I. I had, I had a revelation about Bill Wyman and Mandy Smith, really. It occurred to me a long time after all of that happened. This was the 1980s. And I, I went through my life. I, I got married. I had children. I built my career. I went through all kinds of stuff. And I suppose I had to get to a certain point in my life before I realized, before it occurred to me, actually i was abused too in this situation i was used by a rolling stone to conceal his affair with a child mandy was 13 when bill and she met and that i'm afraid to say makes bill wyman a pedophile mandy was sold to the world as as an icon, as a role model, as somebody to look up to because she was young and beautiful and soignee and sophisticated. And she was the sort of eighties answer to Marianne Faithful and Anita Pallenberg, if you like. Uh, but she was 13, she was a child. And the thing I can't get my head around is that she, she was attending a, a normal state school in a rundown part of North London. Bill removed her from that school. He put her into a private school in Chelsea near to his home on the King's Road. She used to trot off to school every day in her school uniform, come home to his flat every afternoon, and then she would get all dolled up, the hair, the makeup, cross between Nancy Sinatra and Raquel Welch. You know, she looked amazing. And then they'd go off. We'd all go off clubbing, go to a restaurant, go to a nightclub, home about two o'clock in the morning, and then she'd go to school the next day. And and only recently has it occurred to me, the headmistress of that school must have known how old she was. The bursar of the school, who would be responsible for receiving the money from Bill Wyman, they knew who was paying the fees. They would have known how old she was. Her mother clearly knew how old she was, but her mother wasn't very well at the time. And so Mandy and her sister were left to their own devices a lot of the time. But all the responsible adults in Mandy's life failed her. And to some extent, we failed her, but we also were young. So what Bill did was to gather a mixed age friendship group around himself to conceal the fact that he and Mandy were a couple. So we'd all go out together in a limousine and then we'd get to the restaurant. Uh, Bill would say to my friend, Ross Kane, who's a famous broadcaster here these days, uh, you take Mandy in and I'll walk in with Leslie Ann. And so so it would look as though we were couples. And then the others would all come in as well. And then when it came to going home, the limousine would drop us off at various addresses. And always, it would be Bill and Mandy left in the back of the car, just the two of them. And it came out when he gave her a birthday party. Uh, We were all in this restaurant underneath his flat, 344 Kings Road, French restaurant called Thierry's. And there was a huge circular birthday cake on the table with one candle and russ said to mandy go on then Mandy. how old are you today 15 she said and we were all doing the math going oh my god oh my god because she's been around for the last couple of years which means she was 13 when this all started and we were horrified and russ and i, I i'm still very close friends with russ we talk about this from time to time and i, I said to him you know i I feel like I've blocked out a big chunk of what happened there what happened next what what immediately happened next and he said we stopped it we were terrified that we'd done something wrong and that something might happen to us and so the whole thing just fell apart and off we went and then Bill and Mandy got married when she was 18 so a lot of people say well he couldn't have done anything wrong because he married her so he would be in prison if he'd done anything wrong but it's okay because he married her that didn't negate the crime and it never will negate the crime and also other people have said well it's been so long now you know it was ages ago Uh, they wouldn't get him for anything now he's been looking over his shoulder all these years Yes, and I'm not trying to put anybody behind bars, but I'm just saying, I spoke to judges and barristers in this country about that case. It wasn't a case actually, can't even call it a case. Nobody ever made a formal complaint to the Metropolitan Police or the Crown Prosecution Service. Bill later said, I went to my local police station. I asked them if they want to talk to me about this, this scenario with Mandy and they said no. No charge to answer. That's because nobody ever made a formal complaint against him. Somebody still could. Somebody still could. He's, what is he, 85 now? He's got grown up daughters. He's married to Suzanne, who was the girl he wrote uh, Je suis un rock star about a long, long time ago. But, you know, he's on borrowed time. He is on borrowed time. Um, I take a lot of criticism for this, but I will say it always, I was there, I was involved, I was with him the night they met. And this was an inappropriate, if not illegal relationship, criminal relationship, from the very first night. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Well, that's go ahead.
4: Intense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, that's...
2: Just... Yeah. That's that's a lot there. And, and it must be incredibly, how can I put this? It must be it's, it feel like carrying a weight with all that information. I mean, like you said, you know you you have these books where you tell the truth about the individual, and it's just I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know,
3: yes, I had weight. I had put it aside. Yeah. yeah, And this is true story. I had put it aside all these years until Jerry Hall. Mick Jagger's ex, married the media baron Rupert Murdoch Mm -hmm. at St. Bride's Church, Fleet Street. So there they all are, I'm at this wedding. It wasn't actually a wedding, it was um, a blessing because they both still had living ex-spouses. They couldn't be married in church, in the Anglican church. So they had a civil marriage and then they had a church blessing. And I had not seen Bill all those years, and I didn't see them, I didn't realize they were in the congregation until the service was over and it was time for everybody to leave. And they came out of the church through the arch, arm in arm, and I came face to face with Bill Wyman for the first time in about 30 years, and I was in shock. I was in absolute shock. He was the only Rolling Stone at the wedding, even though Jerry was very friendly with all of them. Uh, She's very, very close friends with Suzanne, so this would explain their presence. But all of those years rolled back and I was right back in that place when I found out how old Mandy was. And it was pretty horrifying. I was supposed to go on, I was invited to the reception after this service and I couldn't go because I knew they'd be there. So I went and I met some other friends for a late lunch, and then went home. I could not bring myself to go and stand in a wedding reception room with him and make as though nothing had happened.
1: Okay, that's undeniably awkward. That's That's yeah. <laughs> the best <clears throat> I can say is is, yes. Yeah. So, um before it gets too heavy, I guess let's actually move yeah. on to the book the the the, yes. the Stone Age, um, how, how did you, I know that you say that the artist kind of finds you, mm-hmm. with your new project. How did the Rolling Stones become your newest project?
3: Very simply, the 60th anniversary. <laughs> I, I knew that was coming around and I thought, my goodness, that yeah, there have been loads of books about the Rolling Stones. No woman writer has ever really tackled their story. Most of the Stones biographies are written by male music writers, many of whom are my friends, who had posters of this band on their bedroom walls when they were teenagers, who wanted to grow up to be those men in that band, and who worship the music and who write books that really focus on the the albums, the great catalog of music, which is undeniably brilliant, the Juggernaut tours, And the business side of the Rolling Stones, they have hardly ever delved into relationships. They leave emotions alone. I don't think male writers, unless that's their subject, generally deal with emotions very much. I realized I wanted to get behind the famous stones, the individuals, and under their skin and find out what made them tick as individuals and unravel those relationships. And also look at those relationships from the point of view of the women they were involved in. And there were a lot of victims. So I thought there's a very balanced story to be told here. On the one hand, I can celebrate the music and the impact on global culture that this band has had. Because people ask me all the time, what's the secret of their longevity? And I say, it is their longevity. It's the fact that they've been around for so long. No other band has achieved this, not in, as, as it was for a long time, their original lineup, pretty much. Bill didn't quit the band until 91. We lost Brian Jones, the founder in 69, but he was very quickly replaced by Mick Taylor. Mick Taylor went off the rails. That was because Jaggers seduced him. This isn't very often talked about either. So Mick was out of the band by 75, and then in comes Ronnie Wood. Ronnie Wood, who had a, a very cohesive effect on the band. It was beginning to fall apart. And Ronnie, with his personality and his joie de vivre and his general approach to life, which is very glass half full, very positive, brought back the warring factions together, mainly Mick and Keith, and, and got everybody rolling again, got the stones rolling again. So that was Ronnie's role. But I thought there's so much here, you know, and there's so much that hasn't been said it was a gift really it was i was staring a gift horse in the mouth and i couldn't walk away from it
1: now i will say i found it extremely interesting that you chose to begin the book not with any member of the stones but with jerry and that seems to be a through line is is here are the women in this story Did you set out to do that or does that happen organically or did like, what, what was that choice to put the women in front?
3: I was setting out my store. I was saying with this opening chapter that this is not going to be another rerun of all the books you've ever read about the Rolling Stones and celebrating their musicianship and their fame and their success and uh, the way they've conquered the world. But this is going to go in, via a route that you may not have expected. And so I wanted to say right from the outset, I'm going to tell this story through other people who were involved with them for many, many years, who are disregarded as a rule, but whose own stories need to be told. And I always like to, to go in on a specific and then to take take the story right back. So So the chronological biography is, You know, they were born here, they went to school here, then they went and did this, and that's a very boring approach. I think it's always better to land somewhere specific, right from the opening page, uh, to hit the ground running, and to say, right, this, and this was a turning point for me as well as a writer, because not only was I there witnessing Jerry offloading the influence of Mick Jagger and making a new life for herself, it's pretty tragic that that marriage has collapsed since then, but it doesn't surprise me because she married Rupert Murdoch, but she still offloaded Mick Jagger and she she won. She was triumphant that day because Rupert Murdoch could have bought out Mick Jagger 500 times over. <laughs> but what was curious is that in that church that day, everywhere you looked, there was Mick Jagger because all the children were there mm-hmm. and there were other children of his there who weren't Jerry's so and also Bianca Jagger was there you know so you looked around and there was there was Mick Jagger's life on a plate in this church that day and this seemed to me to be a very uh a a crossroads if you like crossroads is a theme in the book as well for all the 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 rock and roll and the blues reasons um there's a great mythology there which I explore I take it right back um back to the 1930s actually Um, But there was also a sense of malevolence there that day, which I was shocked by. And I came up with a creature to kind of project the, the shiver that I had witnessing this marriage blessing that day. And he's present in the church. I'm sure you picked up on it.
1: Is that the, the karma chameleon? There you go. That was a great <laughs> reference. Yeah. <laughs> you you just have such an eloquent and impressive way that you present any chapter in any of your books. Thank you. It's it's it, it it's such a beautiful juxtaposition for you to talk about things that there might be malevolence in, but it's done and you 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 go through the color palette of the bridesmaids and the it, it's just you need to stop me because I'm just going to sit here and gush.
3: <laughs> well, so that's interesting that you pick up on that because I that there you go again. I I knew that a male rock writer would not have perhaps even noticed that all the shades of blue of the bridesmaids were different from each other. I think a male music writer might have said all oh, the bridesmaids were in blue, yeah. but so it it meant something for me to pick out the detail and to describe every single one and the shoes of Jerry's of the ring and the, the make of the dress, all those things. It, this is reportage. This is what I was trained to do. I, but it brings a scenario into a person's living room. They need to feel that they were there. You have to be their eyes and ears. You have to bring all those scenes alive for them. This is, this is just a journalist doing her job, really.
1: And I think one of the most brilliant lines was because it was so visceral. Was you you said that she was so close to you, you could you could smell her toothpaste?
3: Oh yeah, she passed, like, She brushed past me, and she smelled minty. You know, was, she's but, lovely, Jerry. I've I've met Jerry a number of times, and she is a good soul, a good-hearted woman who can embrace all of Jagger's exes and all of the children. The only one she never invited to Thanksgiving was um, Luciana Morad, who had gave Mick his son, Lucas, Brazilian model and TV presenter. And, and Jerry drew the line there because Lucas was born when Jerry had only just had Gabriel, mm-hmm. Mick and Jerry's youngest child. And that's where so, she drew the line, right? That was, yeah, that was, that, and, was, that another was the woman point. was pregnant by him the same as same time as I was. I mean, come on, you know, and, and that,
1: that was disastrous, right? Because that ended up, that's when Jerry found out that she wasn't actually married correct?
3: Soon soon afterwards when, when she decided to divorce him and Mick engaged obviously London's most expensive divorce lawyers and managed to prove through the high court that their marriage was not legally binding because they had a Hindu ceremony on Bali in Indonesia and the paperwork was not processed. And so he would do that to four of his children. He would make four of his own kids illegitimate for the sake of not paying the woman who he'd lived with for 21 years who'd borne him four children he would not accord her that respect which is pretty shameful isn't it really and <laughs>
4: yeah
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: okay uh before i get angry it's someone i've never met <laughs> calm down dear <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um i, I-, I- yeah
3: go sorry oh, go, go ahead honey
2: no no i was, I was gonna say it, it does beg an interesting sort of philosophical writing question which is the subject of these books is it about them or do you actually gain more from those around them you know or, or is it somewhere yeah. a meeting in the middle
3: it's both it's very much both because for every keith richards there's an anita Palmberg. there is you know there there are other women who became involved I was criticized recently for writing lists of uh, lovers and, and partners. Huh. There's a section in the book and Mick's mix list ran to about 4,000. So I thought I have to yeah. focus on, on this in on just the celebrity names, if you like, names that people would have heard of because mm. otherwise it just gets too messy. But the reason I did that was to try and show how it was always about them and how they used people and threw them aside. They were just sweets. It was like candy in a, in a candy store. The only one who didn't behave like that was Charlie Watts, who got together with his wife, Shirley in 1963, and they got married. They had one daughter, Serafina. He was faithful to her for life. And he didn't go out partying and getting wrecked and misbehaving in clubs when they were on the road. He sat in his room and he sketched his hotel room, every single Mm -hmm. hotel room he ever stayed in, which if you think about it, they're pretty much going to look the same, aren't they? It's it's pretty much the same sketch every night, but that's making a point. That's the same thing in a different way as going through a different woman every night, which is what the others were doing, Mm -hmm. but it's doing the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. I I just, I wanted to show them in the round, and in order to show the Rolling Stones in the round, I had to bring in the supporting cast, and it's, I describe it as a Greek chorus, and that's very much what it is, there's a lot of tragedy there, there are many victims there, all of their stories needed to be told, all in one place, and that's what my book is.
1: Yeah, how many people do you talk to when you're doing your research for a book like this, like a book of this magnitude with this many members and this many players? How many are spoken about, and how many do you speak to?
3: As many as possible. It's a long process. It's a long process. I have, oh gosh, anything up to a year of, uh, I, I throw open the net. You know, I, I have a, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of contacts, a lot of people in the music industry who if they don't know somebody personally that I want to get to they will know someone who does and I, I network massively I take loads of people for lunch and dinner I interview them they introduce me to other people and and it becomes like a spider's web and I amass information in an almost hysterical way I have to get as much information as I can I end up with wall charts all around the walls and I'm writing things in and putting red rings around where there's a gap. And then I have to go looking for someone who could fill that gap. And, and um, it's obsessive. I, I couldn't possibly be married anymore doing this job because <laughs> that just, there wouldn't be room for a husband. Uh, I'm married. I'm literally married to the books. Yeah. <laughs>
1: now you uh it back to the stones proper. You said in an interview with Mark makes that they've become their own tribute band. let me get your take on that yeah they
3: have they have Um, think about it there's only two fifths of the original lineup still going Mm -hmm. so what is a tribute band but a lineup of decent musicians a lot of them professional session musicians who come together and they perform as an entity that they usually admire otherwise why would they play the music so in in the stones now we only have mick and keith of the original lineup Mm -hmm. two fifths You could say, well, we've got half the Beatles. We have Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. So they could feasibly, if they were of the same mindset as the Rolling Stones, they could go out as the Beatles. They don't. I imagine for the primary reason that we lost John Lennon in 1980. So it wouldn't be the same thing. But it's the principle. The Who still do it, for example. We have the Who with only of the original lineup we've no Keith moon we've no John Entwistle, but we have Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. the rest of them are professional session musicians so that m- makes them almost their own tribute if you like because we've only got a, a small but significant element of the originals
1: yeah and it's it's really interesting you bring up you know someone like Paul McCartney because I know when like the 80s and a little part of the 90s mick was trying to sort of break out of his own and do his own solo work and he he worked with david and uh, david bowie um for for those who can't see my face um and he was working with other artists to kind of break out but he never reached that level of paul
3: mccartneyism i guess And and that is what i think mick jagger has against paul mccartney because we've heard all the little bitty arguments, haven't we, especially recently when the, well, Paul said, oh, you know, there were quite a good blues covers band and, and Mick would retort on, live on stage, well, you know, the Beatles haven't existed for 50 years. But that is to overlook the fact that Paul McCartney had many successful years with Wings and all those fantastic Wings albums that we had post Beatles. And the fact that he's had a 50-year solo career and he's still out there touring as Paul McCartney with a loyal lineup of session musicians. Mm -hmm. But he is still out there doing it. So it's very nitpicking of Mick to say that the Beatles no longer exist. Paul McCartney does. And he's carrying the torch for the rest of them. But I think, you know, I said to somebody the other day, wouldn't it be great if the next outing that we get would be, I don't know if you saw the Glastonbury footage where Paul McCartney headlined at this year's Glastonbury Festival. And it was the most amazing show I've ever seen in my life. He's 80 years old. And he brought out, first of all, Dave Grohl, who performed with him, and then Bruce Springsteen. And I said to a friend, how incredible if the next person to walk out on that stage had been Mick Jagger." Just imagine those two on stage together. <laughs> that would have been the ultimate, wouldn't it? And yeah, there's not much time left to get it on, guys. You know, it's <laughs> Paul's 80, mixed 79. I mean, how much longer can they go on?
1: Oh, no, we've definitely got a bucket list of artists that we we are seeing. We just got our tickets to Elton John. And so, okay. like, we, we're... We're making sure to see the ones because we we you know this this whole podcast is about the ones that we've lost and so we mm-hmm. were actually talking about going to a Tom Petty concert and then we we're like ah tickets are kind of expensive eh, it's a little chilly outside and the bowl mm-hmm. is you know open air and and we missed it and that was his last show and then so, he
3: died yeah. so we
1: we went to go we we the monkeys were playing and I said I, to my husband I was like we have to go see them
3: mm-hmm. not do
1: another Tom Petty I don't want this to happen so we went and saw him and literally a month later.
3: He so. was playing the Albert Hall in London. That was July, I think it was his few, about 10 years ago that he would have died. And we'd gone to, um, there's a big uh, Celebrity Fest music therapy launch, And we'd gone to this couple of friends of mine and I, and then we walked across Hyde Park and went to the Albert Hall to see Davy Jones. And that was uh, his last ever show wow. in England, yeah.
1: I I had a run in with him at my rest. I used to work at a restaurant and uh, I was wearing a coat that had a belt and the belt had fallen out of one of the loops. So it was kind of dragging behind me. And I just hear from behind, excuse me, um, your belt's dragging on the floor. I turn around and I look at him like, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) Davey. Thanks, Davey. I appreciate it. (laughs) So that was the day a monkey fixed my belt. So, you know, so we have these like, we have these ideas of sex drugs and rock and roll Mm -hmm. in your opinion is are the stones the most salacious band that you've covered or and you don't have to name names i'm totally fine with it just being a yay or nay um either way just what what Uh, do you think
3: well i think led zeppelin probably had the edge (laughs) I, i i i think the stones were trying to be led zeppelin at one point and then I think they met their match, you know, I think. There were years of extreme debauchery. There were orgies on private planes. Uh, there, were, there were people killed at concerts. I'm thinking of Altamont Speedway in 69, mm-hmm. and Meredith Hunter was murdered that night by a Hells Angel. The Stones had the audacity to use the footage of his murder in a film for entertainment purposes. And you see the actual point of murder twice not once in the footage but twice this makes it a snuff movie why has nobody ever said this before seeing murder committed live on film and then deploying it for the purposes of entertainment makes it a snuff movie Mm -hmm. i mean at,
2: at risk of you know sounding the way this is gonna sound it's like in this business you almost see the proverbial sausage being made you know Um, does it affect the way you listen to the music? Can you even listen to the music?
3: Uh, I'm a big fan of Rolling Stones music. And uh, there is a big music section in this book where I explore their roots and also favorite songs of mine that have affected me throughout my life. The music is sensational. They are the greatest rock and roll band in the world. They're also the greatest rock and roll brand in the world. And they've been very astute and clever about maintaining their reputation and about feeding that the entire time yeah. um, I think it brings us back to the age-old question of can we separate the artist from the art yeah. and yeah we have to otherwise we wouldn't be listening to Wagner anymore you know mm-hmm. Wagner was uh, anti-semitic um,
1: He was the favorite artist of the Fuhrer, so.
4: Exactly,
3: exactly. And I think, take any artist, you know, take any classical painter from hundreds of years ago, the art of which we still want to go and stand in a gallery and admire. Take any music from any era and explore the life of that artist. Um, There are going to be many pedophiles, many sex abusers, many murderers, many all kinds of everything behind, because artists are complicated people. They are driven to create art, to alleviate something in themselves. So so complicated, deep, troubled people become artists. There aren't very many artists who don't have any issues. It's the reason they become artists. So I think that we have to allow ourselves to step back from the personalities and to not be hero worshippers, but to take the work, the recordings, even the concerts at face value, and to experience it, to to judge it, to enjoy it, to allow it to become part of our lives without thinking too deeply about the characters involved.
1: Now, do you think that looking at the stones, and their past and the fact that they are a band and a brand and that they're so recognizable <clears throat> do you think that there's any artist today that has that impact and staying power that the
3: stones have no definitely not um, in 20 years time we'll be saying Ed Sheeran Adele whatever happened to them you know they will have made a killing very quickly they'll have sustained a career for maybe a decade, maybe two, and then it'll be over. Because it's driven by youth these days, music, I mean, contemporary music and the way it's consumed, which is emphasis off of vinyl, CDs, anything physical. Physical music is, is on the wane. Streaming, downloads, that is the now, and that will develop into the future people will not own things the way we own things today. And I think one of the reasons why bands like the Stones and the Beatles have lasted is because people have kept a hold of their original music. I still have all my original albums. I've also got my father's entire record collection as well. So, So that music doesn't go away. Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Barbara Streisand. I have all those albums as well as all of my own. But I think Music has become much more disposable, mm-hmm. and it's it doesn't it's no longer enjoyed across the board universally so m- my grandmother, were she still alive, would not be listening to Ed sheeran. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother doesn't particularly care for Adele. What we had with artists like the Stones and the Beatles was music that was generated by maybe in this case of the stones um They were symbols of rebellion and revolution and they were degenerates and people didn't much like them, but they loved the music and it was all over the radio and people of all ages got to hear it. So your grandmother, your mother, your brother, your sister, your your little cousins, your kids eventually, everybody grew up on that music. And Queen is another example because a lot of the young fans today of Queen came to This band, this music, via their parents' record collections. But I don't think the same thing will happen going forward. I think another reason for it is that hip-hop is so dominant now, it's all pervading. So that alienates the older audience for a start. I mean, there has been a bit of crossover in in terms of a musical such as Hamilton, which is built on hip-hop and is hip-hop infused and inspired. And it does cross over to a certain extent but that's musical theatre. I think purely listening to artists, it is going to be confined going forward to the young. And the young always want their own artists and groups to cleave to and to admire. But because there's no such thing as a three album deal anymore, uh, you might be lucky to get a one single deal nowadays. If it's not successful, out you go. So there's no investment. There's no record companies. I was about to say there's no investment by record companies, but there aren't any record companies anymore. There are one or two conglomerates, conglomerates like uh, Universal, but you haven't got that hands-on relationship between artist and record company that you once had. There isn't the nurturing. There isn't the building of careers. There isn't the longevity anymore. So no, I don't think we are producing artists to replace the great juggernaut artists of yore. And that's another reason why they stick around, why they're still so important, because nobody's coming up to take their place.
1: I also think with streaming now, we lose a lot of the highs and the lows, uh, you know, not to get lost in the technicality of stuff. But honestly, I'm going to be that snob that says vinyl sounds richer, AM radio sounds richer. I still he makes fun of me because I listen to AM radio and I listen to vinyl and yeah, I've got my playlist on Spotify, but it, it's not the same. And I think there's something that's tactile about uh, having a a CD or a a vinyl in your hand and you make that connection.
3: It's exactly, I was saying before about every time you Uh, remix or remaster something a little bit of the original is lost and it happened when cds came onto the market so people were raving about cds they were supposed to be indestructible they were literally compact (laughs) you could carry them around much better than you could carry albums around but they didn't sound the same not if you really listened Mm -hmm. there was quite a lot missing subtle differences but they were missing and each time you come up with a new format you're losing something else just a little bit at a time, which says to me, let's drive everybody back to the original vinyl recordings, Mm -hmm. to the masters, and let's listen to those and see how they sounded when they were cut. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Now, Will, do you have...
2: Yeah, it sort of comes on the heels of the question just prior to this. Do you see any artists today that you think that's a story I'd like to tell. They, they they seem
3: interesting. Is there anyone that jumps out to you? Will anybody be around long enough? It's it's <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Um, not so far. Nobody's grabbed me so far. People quite often ask me why do you not write about younger artists? Ah, I'm I'm not seeing a story that grabs me not yet. Maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe we'll have another David Bowie at some stage. Uh. But I'm not seeing it yet. Maybe that makes me a dinosaur too.
1: <laughs> No, please. I yeah, I love dinosaurs. <laughs> I love love dinosaurs. Never change. Don't ever do anything. Like, um so uh Will, do you want to ask her the silly question? Then I'll ask her the the actual question because we the always other have a silly use... question. We yes. have we have we have a very okay, so. Uh, with rock and roll heaven we have an a, a sort of an inside joke that has evolved from uh, something that we discovered that that in each episode we would mention uh, people like Petula Clark, Dusty Springfield, members of Rush, Phil Collins it's just these people would like naturally come up in conversation And the oddest one was this, honey. Do you want to take it over?
2: Yes. So what we found is, at least at the beginning, a lot of our subjects had some type of interaction with Manfred Mann's Earth Band, which became an ongoing gag for the podcast. (laughs) So it does beg the question, as it is a normal topic of ours on every show, have you had any interaction with Manfred Mann's Earth Band?
3: Does it count that Tom McGinnis is one of my best friends?
2: uh yes
3: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) so there you go (laughs) yes absolutely you just i think you just won our podcast that's it we're not (laughs) tom is adorable he was 80 recently and uh the blues band is actually they've been out on tour this summer but uh, he's an exquisite musician and a a gentleman i love him
1: oh yeah we we actually uh have been trying to get a member of Manford Band's Earth Band to record the, the what we always say after we, we make the reference and I'm just like how do we do and then I found out that they were following me on Facebook that's and I'm like funny.
3: oh no <laughs> that's funny. I must I must introduce you to Tom. Oh that would oh, be that would
4: be, similar.
2: that would be the best Manford Band's Earth Band reference of our podcast
4: ever. <laughs> I we're will
1: done. I will do it. I think I think I, definitely yeah, you I will you, do that. You win you win. Yes. <laughs> So um, I I, I guess one of my final (laughs) questions is, what is next for you?
3: Well, uh, there are a couple of things on the table and I'm in discussion with my publisher and my agent about which one we go with. But um, I try and keep myself to a book a year so that I'm always researching one while one is just published and then the paperback of the previous one is just about to hit. So Freddie Mercury paperback of uh, Somebody to Love is coming out this autumn,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and then obviously The Stones is out right now. And then I'll be researching the next one. So we're just we're just trying to decide which side to come down on. But two major artists that you will definitely have heard of, yeah.
1: And I yes. I guarantee you I will be the first one to purchase it because oh bless you again, you, your, your writing style is just so incredible. It's, it's beautiful. It's eloquent, but it's not unattainable. It's one of those thank things you. where you can read it. You can listen to it. Um, you know, I listened to the audiobook of hero and it, it, you it's just, your style is just so perfect. And so for our listeners, guys, anything that you can get your hands on by Leslie Ann Jones is a treasure. And I can't, I can't say thank you enough this
2: is amazing for joining yeah.
1: us i could listen to you talk about rock for for years not even like hours just you, you could just if you just want to live in my computer and talk tell me stories i'm fine with that
3: <laughs> god bless you it's this has been an amazing conversation and uh, it's yeah your questions have opened my eyes to things that i had taken for granted as well so i always say that an interview is a two-way street it's a it's a conversation, and it is about listening, but that applies to both sides, as well. So thank you for this great conversation, and thank you for the opportunity to take part. Thank you. I'm I'm going to go to bed amazing. now because literally yeah. my
1: day can't get any better. <laughs> oh, bless you. So guys, please make sure you check out the book, The Stone Age. Um, Leslie Ann Jones. Thank you so much again for taking time to to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Um, and hopefully I will be able to talk to you about your next book um, whenever that comes out. Oh, that would be a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, and you have a wonderful day.
3: You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. So,
1: oh my God. okay. That was our interview with author Leslie Ann Jones. She, again, is just a juggernaut when it comes to the music scene. Um, She has been... Uh, one of the main sources for a ton of the episodes that we've covered some of her interviews have been sort of uh thrown into other episodes it's she is such a magnificent writer i cannot praise her enough and And, her
2: tell these stories is incredible it really is this is
1: running about an hour and a half so far and i could have listened to her talk all day
2: oh easily yeah i was enthralled yeah
1: easily so uh, we want to thank you guys so much. This was sort of our July slap nuts, I guess, but
2: August, I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, um. but yes. So, oh, wait, no, July. It's not July. It's August. It Holy is August. Cats. Yes. Is August. Just August. So like I said, you guys, please go check out the stone age that just came out on August the second here in America. You can get it on Amazon and wherever you buy. Awesome book, so please make sure to check that out. And thank you guys for tuning in this week on uh, Rock and Roll Heaven. Next week we will be starting our series on Lane Staley. And just to let you guys know, this was sort of recorded out of um, out of order, so we already had the episode with Lane in the can. So you'll understand next week why we're so late on everything. I will tell you a little spoiler alert: it rhymes with Hovid. And Will's just laughing. So I wonder. <laughs> so thank you guys so I'll, much. I'll for get taking- it. I'll get it. Yep. Hold on. I'm sure you're, I'm, I, I, I feel like it's on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> just about. So guys, thank you so much for checking out this episode. We will see you guys next week. We love you all. Have a safe and wonderful week and we'll see you next time. Bye.
0: Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer.